Hello, this is Kisa Shreen. Today on the show, we're featuring another interview from our Net Zero Conversation series. The series was recorded at the Net Zero Delivery Summit, hosted by the City of London Corporation in association with the COP26 UK Presidency 2022 and the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, also known as GFANS. As always, we love hearing from you, so reach out on social media or at our show inbox, fmt at lseg.com. Now over to Jane Goodland, Group Head of Sustainability at LSEG. Sven, welcome and thank you for joining us on Net Zero Conversations. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. So you're from RWE Renewables Offshore wind business. Tell us a little bit more about that. So we are the second largest operator of offshore wind farms in the world. The majority of of our business for the time being is in Europe because that's obviously where we started from. But we are expanding beyond Europe to the US and also to Asia Pacific markets such as Japan, Korea, Taiwan and India. We have about two and a half gigawatts of offshore wind capacity installed but we want to more than triple that to more than eight gigawatts by 2030. The investment program that we have laid out last November as part of the RWE Growing Green strategy foresees that, and we are on a very good way to achieving that. We are constructing two very large offshore wind farms as we speak. We've just finished one here in the UK, the Triton-Null offshore wind farm with partners from Japan. We are constructing the 1.4 gigawatt project Sophia here in the UK as well. We are constructing a wind farm in Germany and have plenty of others that are in various stages of development. We are very well on path for that 8 gigawatt target by 2030. Just to help people understand, how does the 8 gigawatt target compare to more traditional energy sources? 8 gigawatt would probably roughly be what you had in 8 nuclear power plants. However, of course, the full load hours are a little bit lower. Typically, for offshore wind in Europe, they range between 4.5 to you know, 5,000 full load hours. So it's very, very good. It's clearly the highest full load hours of any renewable energy source mm-hmm. if you compare it with onshore wind and PV. And that is obviously one of the particular values of offshore wind. I mean, obviously, in your business, your business is integrally linked to transition to net zero. Can you talk to us a little bit from a personal perspective? What's your journey been like on that net zero? Absolutely, yes. It's interesting. You know, my background is geophysics. I studied geophysics and uh, what you do if you don't aspire to an academic career, which you could also do, you actually go into oil and gas exploration. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what I did for the first six years of my life, my professional life. I was uh, in oil and gas exploration. I then went into uh, uh, strategy consulting and in 2006, I went back into the power industry or energy industry and started working in renewables. And ever since I've been working in renewables with an emphasis on offshore wind. And I have to say, you know, there are two areas around it which are absolutely fantastic. The Mm -hmm. first one is really that sense of doing the right thing, the Mm -hmm. sense of the right purpose. And I have kids, uh, two twin boys of 13 years old, and, you know, leaving a planet that is still livable in the way that we know it and protecting the planet 
that is definitely a purpose that is worthwhile getting up for every single day and, mm -hmm. and being passionate about. And the second wonderful thing about my work is the, the passion of our team mm -hmm. and the degree to which they really love what they do. And I have to say, you know, the best thing in my job is going out and visiting an offshore wind farm, mm -hmm. which I regularly do, it gives me goosebumps every single time. It's such a fascinating thing. And I know it's difficult for many people to do that because obviously they are relatively far away from, from the shoreline, etc. But it's absolutely fascinating. And that combination of the passionate team that we have mm -hmm. and the people really, you know, doing that for a purpose and doing that with real you know, personal motivation and conviction and the fascinating technology, it's an absolute blessing. Mm -hmm. And the technology presumably has evolved quite a lot from the kind of early farms. It absolutely has. The early offshore wind farms that we built, uh, for example, in the UK, had individual wind turbines of about two megawatts. Mm -hmm. At the moment, what we are constructing is going to have 14 to 15 megawatts. And that is probably not the end. Mm -hmm. So it's a massive improvement or a massive evolution of the technology and many, many other aspects that we have developed. We are at the moment developing solutions for floating offshore wind. Mm. Uh, so when you actually don't have fixed foundations, which will unlock the potential for offshore wind in deeper waters. So there is still a lot of innovation to be done and a lot of technological uh, development. So in the past, we've seen a certain amount of opposition to offshore wind. Are you still seeing that now or, or has that kind of fallen away? It very much varies really from point to point, depending mm -hmm. on where the offshore wind farm project is. So in some places, we still obviously have people who have concerns around offshore wind farms in their vicinity, either because of visual impact, even though the majority is so far from the mm. coast that you barely see it or don't see it at all. But of course, there are also other stakeholders, for example, fisheries, or sometimes there are nature protection areas in the vicinity. So what we do is we engage as early as possible with those stakeholders, engage in a, in a really extensive dialogue and consult uh, with all the stakeholders. And usually we reach very good results with that and compromises that allow us to actually go ahead with the projects in really almost all cases. Mm -hmm. So usually it's really a matter of engaging in dialogue and you know giving people the right facts and usually then we find good solutions. And you've been involved in this business now for, for some time and, and the debate around net zero is obviously becoming more prominent and accelerating. Have you seen that in your business? Has that changed your business the way that you know, that's captured the global attention now? Yeah, it, it certainly has. You know, I've been active in offshore wind, as I said, since 2006. And at the very beginning, it was a, a small niche. Mm. Then for some time, you know, it started to take off, but we still needed a lot of conversation, in particular with politicians, to really convince them that offshore wind was going to be part of the future mm. energy, energy supply and, and giving them the arguments as to why. And now I would say probably over the last two years broadly, that has really made the next step change. And now there is very wide recognition in society and politics that offshore wind absolutely should be part of the answer, has to be part of the answer for reaching net zero, reaching an energy transition that really fights climate change. And that is now really a, a situation where there is almost more pull by mm. uh, societies and politics than anything else, which obviously is a, is a great place to be. And to what extent do you think that COP26 being the finance COP has 
helped bring that sector in more towards looking at the investment into renewables? Yeah, I think it certainly has helped to, uh, let's say, increase the the awareness and increase the understanding for our sector. Mm-hmm. That said, you know, a lot of the big banks and financing institutes had already been engaged in various offshore wind projects in Europe. And I think it has already prior to COP26 has been widely seen as a, you know, an investable business case. Mm-hmm because it's it's really a mature business now from a technical point of view and from a from a risk point of view i think it's widely seen like that but nevertheless certainly cop26 uh, helped to deepen that understanding further sure and let's talk about the policy environment because any business needs the right policy environment to to succeed in what's that like in the uk and across europe and, and perhaps in other countries as well from your from your experience do we have the right policy environment could we be doing more to make it easier for renewables yeah let me start with the positive side the positive side as i said is there is a strong pull and a strong desire by governments across europe and in many other countries around the world now i, I can come back to that in a minute to say yes we want offshore wind, we want more offshore wind, and we want it faster than ever before. So that's very positive. And there is also a a general recognition about some of the things that that need to happen to get to those targets. We have seen increasing targets in almost all European states that have a meaningful coastline to say, yes, we want more offshore wind. So that's positive. And there is a recognition of saying, well, that needs to go together with a respective build out of grid infrastructure or investments into a changing grid infrastructure. And of course, also all the maritime spatial planning needs to be up to the task, i.e. the areas for all those megawatts need to be identified. And they also need to be developed by the member states in a way that these become really projects that that can achieve a permit, you know, a building permit in foreseeable timeframes. So that general recognition is there. It is, however, also obvious that in order to really reach the massive acceleration that we need, and let me maybe really put that in perspective again, we need to about 15-fold the deployment of offshore wind between where we stand today and 2050. Mm-hmm. So 15 times as much as we have built so far. How realistic is that? Can we do that? It is realistic. The areas are there of uh, maritime space. And as I said, the technology is mature and it can be done. And, and companies are ready to invest like my own to say, yes, we want to do this. We want to invest in this business. we we'll continue to invest in this business and we can do it. However, in order to unlock that, there are a couple of things that also from a regulatory and policy side need to be ensured. And as I said, one is we also need, in line with that massive acceleration of building the generating asset, we also need a massive acceleration of reinforcing the grid infrastructure. Mm -hmm. That is an absolute requirement. The second thing is, it is required that the permitting, and that goes both, again, for the wind farms, but also for the grid infrastructure, that the permitting is accelerated. At the moment, these these, uh, procedures are still taking many years, depending Mm. in in which country, you know, you are talking three to seven or eight years of permitting. And that needs to be accelerated. And also the final but not least important point is the auction regimes and market designs also need to be such that the investments can really be or are being attracted and can really be made against a background of a relatively uncertain at the moment, uncertain cost side when it comes to 
So some of the raw materials, mm. not the least steel, but also copper, aluminum, nickel. I mean, you can quote almost any of these. At the moment, not only have the prices increased very recently, very significantly, mm -hmm. but also the outlook has become much more uncertain at the moment. And that puts a lot of challenges onto the supply chain, i.e. the manufacturers mm. of wind turbines and foundations and, and substations. And it also makes their investments, increased capacities, uh, more challenging. And of course, we need to find mechanisms, market mechanisms and auction mechanisms that allow players to make these investments, even though the ingoing costs, let's say, are more uncertain at mm -hmm. the moment. So we need mechanisms that allow us to say, okay, I, can, I see a perspective of matching my true cost with my returns. And there are some very good examples of that. For example, here in the UK, the CFD mechanism is such that it's indexed, linked to the inflation rate. And that is a very good mechanism that should be adopted in, in more states. Mm -hmm. What we should minimize is negative bidding. So at the moment, in some states, companies like RWE need to actually pay money for the right to develop a project. Mm -hmm. And of course, ultimately, all that does is it makes offshore wind more expensive. And that at some point uh, further down the road will find its way into prices of, of consumers of the mm -hmm. power. And that's actually not what we need. So that should be minimized. And then one final question, if I may, really talking about kind of the wider impacts of offshore wind, because obviously they are creating a renewable energy source, but the manufacturing of them and the production of the installation are not without their environmental impacts. So can you talk a little bit about how RW is minimizing or, or its partners are minimizing some of those? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, as an industry, and I really mean, you know, the, the whole supply chain of this industry, uh, there is a clear path that we need to go to go to net zero through the entire supply chain. And uh, as RWE, we, we, we have our uh, ESG targets and, and they cover all the three uh, sectors. We, we definitely look into that and we will be playing a major role in ensuring that whatever we procure uh, you know, from, from our uh, suppliers is green or is on a path to becoming green and becoming net zero. So there's no doubt about that. Let me say one additional thing though. Obviously, what this industry also does is it brings a lot of really high quality and highly skilled jobs and, and labor to our economy. That is a, a growing business. And in that sense, it, it certainly also has a very positive impact on the wider economy. And what we're also doing is we're investing a lot of money into ensuring that not only are we carbon neutral in the foreseeable time frame, but that we also have biodiversity targets to, mm -hmm. to, uh, to add one more example along the ESG scope where we want to ensure that our wind farms post 2030 or from 2030 are actually net positive on biodiversity. It's great to hear. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. We invite you to subscribe to the Refinitive Sustainability Perspectives podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream your content. What did you think about the podcast? Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for updates on our show. Thank you for joining and see you next time.